Quad Vancouver. Pre-game, post-game, every game presented by Bodog from Sports Odds to free casino games. Make a play at Bodog.net. One and J-Pat here with you. Off-season edition of the podcast and playoff edition too. Of course, it got kicked off last night around the NHL. We're going to definitely get into some of that talk. But uh, listen, there's still some stuff to unpack from yesterday from what we heard, uh, mostly from Patrick Alvin. I think we did enough on, on Rick Tockett. But there's a few things that we heard from Patrick Alvin that uh, I want to d- dive into. Let's start with one that uh, I thought really is out of his hands. And it was asked about the practice facility. Like, uh, yeah. what's Patrick Alvin really going to say about that? He's like, yeah, let me reach into my wallet here and uh, I'll find a piece of land downtown. And like, I, I, I don't know. I found that one to be a little bit odd. I know that he wants it. Of course he wants it. But at the end of the day, like, that's not really a question for it. the GM. That's That's going right to the top with that one. Right, but uh, guess who wasn't sitting there at the podium yesterday? And so, uh, you know, I don't know if there was method to the madness. Uh, I think Farhan sort of, uh, you know, he he lofted a question there and said, this is probably better suited for Jim. Uh, You know, again, I I think there is some expectation that the president of Hockey Ops can meet with the media and speak directly to the fans a couple of times a year. And Rutherford has said he's going to zip his lip. And and so he wasn't there and holding true to what he had said in January. But yeah, there are big questions, big picture questions around this hockey club at a practice facility. It's not going to, you know, just sprout up overnight, obviously, but, you know, can they find an existing rink and, you know, partner with somebody, one of the municipalities around town, are they going to have to build their own from the ground up? But I mean, that would be years away. Um, you know, and there's been lots of talk over the years about uh, various places and plaza of nations. You know, I think it's important too to think about the city of Vancouver. Like the Canucks would use a practice facility most mornings and maybe a visiting team might skate there as well, but there's lots of hours in a day. I think they would love in a perfect world to partner with a private enterprise and also uh, a a local government somewhere and have it as one of these public private uh, partnerships, because as the city grows, like if you look at the city of Vancouver, there isn't a lot of ice rinks in the city of Vancouver proper and Yale town, uh, you know, Yaletown sprouted up as a place where people and families are living and you need recreational facilities. And so it would make sense, perfect sense for the city of Vancouver to have a sheet of ice somewhere, uh, you know, beyond Rogers Arena. And so, you know, the, the Plaza of Nations seemed like a really good sort of location right across the street for the Canucks, but also, you know, at that part of town that for the non-NHL hours, you could have it in the evening for public skating and minor hockey and maybe figure skating and, you know, lessons and all those types of things. And so, you know, I I still think that that's probably something that they would like to work with the city of Vancouver. Uh, Yeah. I mean, there was a time a couple decades ago where, you know, one of the rinks at eight rinks was basically theirs and they had built a, almost a replica of their locker room there so that when they practiced the, training staff and the equipment guys like you know it was comfortable for them uh they had rooms where they could medical treatment and all that kind of stuff um you know so it's not just a sheet of ice there's more that goes into it obviously and i do think that yeah like it's something somebody said yesterday that they're one of two teams in the nhl without uh, i'd have to go and look uh who the I, i'm off the top of my head i can't think of who the other one is but you know again it's these things like it matters um you think about this, like 
you know, there was so much talk last year about training camp and management didn't like Bruce Boudreaux's training camp. And, and I still don't know if they didn't like the three days at Whistler or if it was what happened after they came back from Whistler. But remember, in September, Rogers Arena was a construction zone that carried over into the start of the season. And so they were forced in preseason basically to skate out at UBC. Like, that's tough. Like, if you want to build the best environment for your hockey club, if you want to give your team and put them in the position to succeed, you'd think you own the rink downtown. Like, get that construction done through the summer. You you know, they got eliminated. They started the playoffs. They, they weren't in the playoffs. Like, they could start the, the construction right away, and yet it carried over. And so training camp rolled around the start of the preseason, and these guys are being forced to drive out to UBC. And it may sound like a small thing, but again, it's about putting players in the position to succeed. They don't have the training facilities out at UBC. So if a guy, you know, got banged up in a skate out at UBC, had to come back down to Rogers Arena to, you know. Well, Travis Dermott did, right? Would he have had to have gone down? Like, Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, he got hurt out at UBC and it, just all those things. It's little things that add up, but it's, you know, just a big picture organizationally. Also, I think now free agents, like, you know, they do their deal, due diligence. Their agents are in on this. Like, what does a team have to offer? And maybe a practice facility is way down the list, but my guess is it's on a list somewhere. And it just it speaks to the treatment that these teams are able to provide for their players and all of the luxuries that go along with being in the National Hockey League. So you're right. Patrick Aldean wasn't going to pull out a shovel and start digging there yesterday and say, here we go. Like, I'm, <laughs> you know, I got my hard hat on. But I thought it was fascinating, too, as I left Rogers Arena yesterday. Guess what? There's more construction. They had blown out walls um, just down the hall from where the Canucks locker room is. So I know that there's been some talk of them building uh, a new uh, corporate, you know, uh, like ice level dining area that other teams do. I don't know if that's where it's going in, but I thought, man, like the season just ended and here we are uh, back into, you know, concrete walls being knocked down at Rogers arena. And so we'll see how this construction process goes and if it carries over uh, until uh, next season begins. You're, you're right about Plaza Nations. I, I remember at one point, like, Plaza Nations was thriving in Vancouver. Yeah, like, it was the spot. I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean, there used to be nightclubs down there and there used yeah. to be all kinds of events uh, in there. It was a casino at one point, too. Like, yeah, it's just crazy. It seems like it's, like, uh, just rotting away there. And But not only that, it, it's, like, the perfect facility for it. And I know there's a squabble over the land, and that's why it's not – uh, so easy to get done. But at the same time, too, like, listen, like, you're the Vancouver Canucks. You're one of the most profitable teams in the NHL. Yeah. Like, it's really, they have to get this sorted out. And you say they're one of two teams? Would that Arizona was, be the other one? It's possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, they don't have a home rink, let alone a practice facility. Yeah. So, so, you're, so you're in a league with perhaps the Arizona Coyotes. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, this yep. is going to be something that's going to drag on, and it's definitely it's not going to get solved anytime soon. Here, I don't even think there's really much talk about. It. I was actually quite surprised even about the question at the uh, at the time because I just don't think that there's anything that was going to be solved, and also too that Patrick Calvin really wasn't going to be uh, one of the guys that was going to be able to to answer that. Uh, what about the construction though at the 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 rink? You talked about that. Um, like, is it better now? Like, is the dressing room like that much? you know, different evolved, if you will. 
No, I was a little surprised, actually. Uh, the locker room, you know, when I started on the beat 20 some odd years ago, 1999, I guess the building opened in 95. Uh, so the original locker room was there and it was pretty plain. And then I guess as new buildings were popping up around the National Hockey League, there were more comforts and those types of things. And so I think it was when Mike Gillis was uh, general manager, you know, they completely gutted the locker room. It used to be square, then it became round in the inside. I don't know that the shape ultimately mattered, but, you know, they they gave the players their lockers were all a little more elaborate than the initial original Rogers Arena or GM place at the time. And then they went through this renovation. Last summer, the big renovation was moving walls around, and Travis Green always felt like he wanted the coaches' offices and the locker room uh, to sort of be connected. So, but just the the footprint of Rogers Arena, the where it is between the viaducts, it is one of the smallest footprints in the National Hockey League. Like there are some of these buildings, Dallas and Chicago and Montreal. You know, they take up city blocks and they are massive. Like American Airlines Center in Dallas and United Center, they're both the sponsored by air, airlines. Like you could, it feels like you could park an airplane in those buildings. Uh, Rogers Arena is cramped just by the nature of where it is. And so in the underbelly, the, the thing that the people don't see, these tiny little corridors and the coaches' offices and the gym were on one side of the hall, the locker room closer to ice level. And it started then that Travis Green wanted sort of everything to be, he, he wanted the coaches' offices to move across the hall closer to the locker room and then maybe bring the medical facilities a little further away from, or the training, uh, whatever the case they have, like that's what last summer was. And they completely gutted, uh, they expanded their gym, they built meeting facilities, uh, they did, although I think the coaches' offices remained where they were. So, um, you know, it, it's difficult to the extent that you're limited by just the space constraints of Rogers Arena. And instead of building out parts of the, you know, the Aquilini family built towers on the property. And that's their prerogative. I mean, they own the land and the, the, the towers are profitable. But there's just like Rogers Arena is bursting at the seams, quite literally, to the point that I heard that. Uh, for as much as people would love an NBA team to come back to Vancouver, that Rogers Arena is incapable of being home to an NBA team full-time because they have nowhere to store the floor. That, like, when you think of the in and out, and the like, they, they store lacrosse floor now. Yeah. Um, but they, they have renovated their loading bays and all this kind of stuff. And somebody told me, somebody that I think was in the know, that said that, like, because the basketball floor has to come up and down so often, like they can do it as a one-off if you bring a preseason game in, but they have nowhere to store the physical floor that you would require to house an NBA team. And so that would be a challenge. Obviously, you couldn't really do it off-site. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that these buildings have to transition from hockey to basketball and back to hockey in relatively short order. So like, they've run out of room. They have. And that's just the nature. Like, you know, I think the bones of the building are still pretty good. Like when I traveled around the NHL, there were lots of uh, sort of rinks that were built in and around the same time that GM Place was. And I would say that the rink in Vancouver is still in really good shape in a lot of ways, but space is a constraint. And it's like anybody, you buy a house and you think, oh, we got lots of room and 
then the kids grow up and they get older and they accumulate stuff. And before you know it, you're like, we need more storage. I think that uh, the Canucks are sort of in that same boat and there's just nowhere uh, nowhere to grow. I mean, the towers have taken over the land that uh, Rogers Arena is sitting on. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see because I don't think there are any designs to, you know, start over and build them a new rink. I mean, those are billion-dollar projects now to build new sports facilities. Um, you know, so I, I think that you have to live with uh, some of the constraints that you've got. Um, but that's where a practice facility it would allow you to expand out and maybe it would ease the burden of some storage to some degree. Yeah. Again, we're getting out into the weeds a little bit, but yeah, I just wonder if they reach a critical mass with Rogers Arena uh, at some point in terms of what can you do? I mean, they want to hold concerts in there. That's why they need, that's why they need a practice facility. Ultimately is it's a multi-use facility that the owners love to concerts. I mean, people pay you to come and use your building. There's very little, you know, overhead in that regard. And then you get a cut on tickets and all the concessions and everything else. So uh, it benefits them to put as many events into the rink as they can on top of the 41 regular season games. And, of course, they'd love some playoff hockey in there one of these springs as well. Could be worse, though. You could have a possum in the uh, visitors broadcasting booth like they have at the <laughs> In Oakland at the county coliseum, there you hear about that. I did, yeah. <laughs> the possum on the loose, yeah. Visitors can't use that. That's hilarious. Uh, you talk about uh practice facilities as well, though. I mean, if there ever was going to be an NBA team here, they're damn well gonna have to get a practice facility too for that. So, not that I think the NBA is coming back here anytime soon. Uh, Patrick Alvin also talked about uh Ethan Bear a little bit, which is interesting because Ethan Bear right now doesn't have a contract with the Vancouver Canucks, but they do control the player. He had an interesting quote, though, about his conditioning that we didn't really get to yesterday. Here's Alvin. There is more to come from Ethan with a good summer, uh, getting in shape and learning how to play. Uh, uh, we're excited about, uh, about him. And, and we, you know, we, during the year, we had conversations. Uh, uh, and I respect that, that he wanted to take a step back and wait. And uh, uh, I'm not sure if he's is worth a race or not, but uh, <laughs> but he's he's a good person and and a good player for him. GM oh, just throwing shade all over the place. Right? Like, gotta get in shape. Wow. I don't know if he's worth a race. <laughs> Learning to play as well. Yeah. Like I'm not even sure, I'm not sure what that means. Like I think Ethan Bear knows how to play hockey like maybe not rick talking hockey but it, that was that was a curious quote that did kind of fly under the radar there was so much else going on on monday but yeah get in shape we've heard that about a bunch of players but clearly that's a challenge to ethan bear yeah. learning to play and then i'm not sure he deserves a raise yeah. and that's going to be fascinating because we've said like ethan bear profiles as a modern nhl defenseman skates well uh you know can move the puck but doesn't bring much in the way of offense. And so, you know, he's not going to play the power play. They've got Quinn Hughes. They've got Philip Ronick now. You know, do you think of him as a penalty-killing ace? I wouldn't go that far. He's a right-shot guy, so there's a premium there. But I'm sure the Canucks have internal limits on how much and how far they're willing to go to pay that player. Or, you know, could a Noah Juleson come up and give you a lot of the same things that an Ethan Bear does and so that's going to be a dilemma and you don't often hear that from a general manager i'm not sure he deserves a raise so you know he was included in the letter that jim rutherford sent out about uh you know pieces that they've got to build around but uh you know gm kind of walking it back a little bit with 
<laughs> those remarks yesterday. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you think Ethan Bear slots in, but for everything you just said there, maybe he isn't worth a raise, right? I mean, he's kind of right around what he's worth right now, and with the Canucks and their and their cap dollars, like you're gonna have to be really careful what they what they do end up giving you know players that uh, you know perhaps aren't worth more than that, right? I mean, I know there's the right shot, and I know that he fits in terms of the age range. He'll be 26 in June right now, so a guy that fits in with their core. Canucks are paying 1.8 for him right now. I mean, you know, does $2 million work for Ethan Bear? Well, and then there's a question of term. Like, you know, yeah. does he want – he seems to like it here in Vancouver. He's starting a family. Like, you know, does he want security? But then you're eating up UFA years, so, you know, you think, well, if you go term, maybe you can get – uh, him to bring the dollars down a little bit, but at the same time, the UFA years, then you're probably going to have to to spend on those. So it's an interesting dynamic to me. Again, I like Ethan Bear, um, but I don't like the idea of overspending on defensemen that you know don't move the needle. And I, I just, again, they've got to find some ways to extract some cost savings here for this hockey club. And and it's unfortunate for Ethan Bear that that's the the situation, but. Yeah, I mean, the, the question comes down, can they afford him? Can they afford to offer him? Uh, you know, he's an RFA, he's not a UFA, but yeah. I wonder how these negotiations are going to go. And if you're Ethan Barron, you hear that, I got to get in shape. They don't think I can play, and I'm not worth a raise. Like, again, Bear, Bear was fine for the Canucks. Like, I, I, I like the acquisition. I don't mind the player. But I do worry about overpaying that sort of player. If, like, what's the difference ultimately between Ethan Bear and Noah Juleson, I guess, is the question that, well, you know, the Canucks have yeah. to decide. Yeah. And they have to make a decision on Noah Juleson as well. He's a good sure. group six uh, UFA. But at the same time, too, when you hear Patrick Alvin talk about the 3C position, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But he talked about the fact that, you know, perhaps it's in the system right now. Mm hmm. I think more than anything that it's probably in the system in terms of defense to be able to move off of one of the players. Like maybe if it's an Ethan bear, like if you have to make a decision, if you have to allocate some dollars, you're probably best to look at your depth and defense as opposed to your depth down the middle right now uh, in terms of filling that hole. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause well, they yeah, have better depth on defense right now. And Philip Johansson, who's decided to come over and he's going to play in the AHL playoffs, right which is, yeah. you know, a guy that, you know, first round pick in Minnesota, wild elected not to sign him. Canucks pounced and, you know, coming off of, he wanted to spend one more season over in Sweden and here he is now. And so they get, you know, a look at him firsthand. He's on the ground. I think he's going to play here in the playoffs. Like if he has a good playoffs, you know, leaves the Canucks with something to think about because I think they think that it's a possibility that yeah. you could, you know, be. So there's another guy that's in the right side mix. Um, you know, we don't know about Kyle Burroughs and his future. Don't know ultimately if Tyler Myers is back, but we do know that Philip Ronick is going to play and play a lot. And that was just, uh, I don't want to call him an obstacle, but for Ethan Bear, that's a guy that's going to eat up time on the right side that wasn't here for the Vancouver Canucks this past season. Cole McWard uh, as well, and then they, they name-checked um, Jet Wu yesterday, yeah. <laughs> although it, the, the thing about Jet Wu, I found that to be very interesting because there's a guy that just we've been talking about forever here, and now all of a sudden his name's creeping up again. So, But I do think it sounds like he's had a good year and haven't yeah. heard. I think this is proof of the development program, the work that guys are putting in, whether it's uh, Jeremy Colton and his coaching staff or Daniel and Henrik and the amount of time that they're spending out there. 
I, it feels like year over year, like this time last year, I think people were ready to move on from Jet Wu and thought he would never play a game for the Vancouver Canucks. And I don't know, like, you know, same with, again, I don't want to get ahead of myself with Guillaume Brisebois, but Guillaume Brisebois maybe was a late bloomer. Like Guillaume Brisebois gave the Canucks some serviceable minutes. I don't know where it goes for Jet Wu, but it feels like he is closer to being a National Hockey Leaguer now uh, than he was a year ago. And that's what you want from your development system. So I'm not writing him off at all. It sounds like he's had a nice year down in Abbotsford. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, if Philip Johansson comes over, and that's great. It's another player that's in the mix here. But I do feel for whoever gets the squeeze in Abbotsford, right? You work all year, you, you seem to have a pretty good thing going in Abbotsford, and then all of a sudden a guy gets airlifted in and is going to get dropped into the playoffs, and somebody that's played hard for the Canucks all season at the AHL level is going to be out of uh, the lineup. And that's unfortunate, but I suppose that's pro sports in an organization that is doing all it can to boost its prospect pool and you know ensure that there actually is a pipeline for the first time uh, in quite some time. Well, there you have it, though. Like, There's four guys that we mentioned that perhaps could be you know, someone that could fill Ethan Bear. So, you know, maybe he is the guy that gets squeezed mm-hmm. in the end and, you know, doesn't get and doesn't get any money from the Canucks. Uh, OEL is getting a lot of money from the Canucks. We know that. Um, <laughs> getting all the money. <laughs> he's getting all the money, really. Uh, he, I feel like he's just going to be a massive key to next season because, like, they need him to work, like, to some capacity. Even if it's in a sheltered role on the third pair, they need it to work somehow with OEL because, as we mentioned, the buyout is gross. But also, too, there is not going to be a single team in the league that is going to want to trade for that contract, not even his old team. And I believe he controls that, does does. he not? Yeah, Yeah. so there's not even – yeah, there isn't – that's not even an option there. So there you have it. Like, for all – everything I just said, I believe he's going to be a massive key. Now, we didn't hear from Patrick Alvin yesterday. We talked about it. But he did say, like, he still believes in OEL. I uh, thought he was uh, very inconsistent. Um, I do believe that, that Oliver, uh, with the right mindset and the, the conversations we had had here over the last couple of months, that he's willing to sacrifice to get his name back. Um, I think that, that, that Oliver has potential to be a, still be a good um, NHL player. Um, with the addition of Ronick and, and the, the game that Quinn Hughes is playing in right now, we, we need Oliver to support those younger players here. And uh, uh, having uh, Adam Foote and Sergey Goncher here working with, with uh, Oliver and, and how we changed our defensive structure, um, I think it's his, his mindset and his, his uh, willingness to show us that he's willing to get back to where he belongs in the top um, pairings here. Um, I'm excited to see uh, him coming into training camp. So left side next year, what are we looking at here? Quinn Hughes, definitely. Has Akita Hirose earned that spot? He's earned the right to give it every opportunity at training camp, I think is is where I'd go with that. I'm not ready to... Write him in in indelible yeah. ink. Yeah. Uh, Travis Dermott, do you think he gets the squeeze? Probably. Yeah. There's too much uncertainty with his health. I think that uh, I think they probably uh, move on. I'm not sure that uh, he's in their future here. All right. Well, then, so what is OEL? Like, what what, well, what can the Canucks get out of a – like, at some point, you're probably going to have to do some load management with them. Yeah. You know, some shelterings. So make sure you're working on those minutes, you know, uh, 
I, I mean, that's the best I think they can do with him. And that just hope that he isn't a huge liability. So a couple of things. Let's just go back to the clip that we heard there. I, I thought really interesting word choice from Patrick Helveen, where he said he wants to reclaim his name. Didn't say that he wants to get his career back on track. He wants to reclaim his name, which I, to me, I read that as like Elvin recognizes that he's been dragged through the mud that, sure. you know, like that his sort of future and his, uh, I don't know if it's a legacy because he hasn't been here that long, but I just thought that was a really interesting sort of term. And Nobody and, wanted him when he came in here. Like this well, is a player that at one point was what? I think he had 23 goals one season. Like, and, and, but as soon sure, as he, he came in captain, here, he was an all-star, yeah. like, no, I mean, at times earlier in his career, he was a hell of a defenseman, but yeah. time has marched on. His game has sped up. Now, the other thing that Alvin said was with the way they've changed their structure and with the additions of Adam Foote and Sergey Gonchar, timeline here is important. The coaching change happened on January 22nd. OEL was injured on February 15th. He didn't even have a full month yeah. to play under Adam Foote and practice with Sergey Gonchar around, what can those guys do? You know, they both played into their 30s. They both played at the highest level. I, I think it's worth noting. And the other thing, too, and OEL himself reminded us on Saturday, I think it got lost in the shuffle of everything else. And there has been so much drama in the last year. But the broken foot at the world's, it did hamper his training, his ability to train. He said as much, and he was behind the eight ball. And again, in a league that's getting faster by the day, uh, it's pretty clear that you know he showed up. He was uh, not at the level that other guys were. Uh, his summer was hampered. His ability to train, to get back on the ice, all that kind of stuff. And so, give him an off season. I, you know, I, he said on Saturday that he's been back on the ice, so that would indicate that, you know, he's pretty close to hockey health again. Won't play until the preseason. So he's got these four months that everybody in the organization keeps talking about, the four months. Give him an offseason. I think Oliver ekman Larson's a smart enough guy to recognize that he's being dragged, that the contract, as much as it's great when you look at the bank account, that, you know, it also works against him in the court of public opinion. You're judged by your contract and the value, and there hasn't been any there. So big offseason, come back, work with Adam Foote and with Sergey Gonchar in a system that is more structured. Again, I'm not expecting him to find the fountain of youth and go back to the 23-goal no. all-star yeah. guy. But to your point, I, I guess I'm willing to give him this offseason like he didn't forget how to play hockey. His body may not allow him to do some of the things that he did earlier in his career, but but the guy didn't forget how to play hockey. So, you know, if he takes on his share of the responsibility, busts his ass all off season here, I think he's gonna be a fascinating guy to watch come training camp. Yep. Where is his game and what can they squeeze out of him in terms of again, if Quinn Hughes is gonna play if Tockett didn't back off the idea of him playing basically half of every game on the left side. So you're not asking a guy to log 20 or 22 minutes. I think you're looking at a, you know, 14 to 16 minute, almost kind of the role that Alex Edler's got with the Los Angeles Kings, even though Edler's a bunch of years older than, than OEL, you know, be a third pair of guy that can, he'd love it if he could be a penalty killer, but I think uh, he was part of the issue with the penalty kill this past year. Um, 
So can he take on some of that load? And, and is that an area he can contribute? Uh, without a doubt, with, at that contract, he is always going to be a target. But what can they extract out of him? Can he contribute to this hockey club here moving forward? Yeah, and just with the depth that they've sort of acquired on the back end as well, maybe that'll help with some load management with him too. You know, maybe you can get OEL to somewhere, if he can stay healthy the whole season, you know, maybe somewhere around 70 games. Like just, yep. you know, and you're right. Keep those minutes down. If they can get to 14 minutes a game for OEL, I think they might be able to get the best out of him. Um we know how just ridiculous the cap structure is for the Vancouver Canucks, and they're going to have to do some sort of management with that uh, here in the offseason, whether they can move out some of these wingers that they have that are on high price tickets, but they have to fill down the middle. They got to fill that 3C spot, and we've been talking about this. You asked the question to the people on Twitter yesterday, and I love this. You said, what kind of players should the Canucks be seeking at 3C? What attributes do you value the most? Face-off guy, penalty killer, point producer, matchup role. And honestly, like I, I like what some of the people are sort of coming at you. One guy suggested maybe John Taves. I don't think Jonathan Taves uh, is an option there. As I look around the NHL, though, I started looking at some of the top teams in the league and how they are down the middle. Like mm-hmm. that guy, that 3C guy, I mean, yeah, you do need a, you'd love to have someone that can penalty kill, win faceoffs, but they have to be a point producer, J Pat. Like that's the modern NHL. Like you can't have a third line that just, you know, is essentially just a defensive stalwart. It doesn't really work. You need guys that can point produce as well. So that guy for the Canucks, what's that going to cost? Like right. that, to me, that starts somewhere around $3 million. And I don't know how much higher you can go there. Right. So can they reallocate some of the money they've got on the wings and, funnel it to the middle yeah. uh what does that look like how do they get it done does it involve peddling a you know nils hoaglander or somebody as a sweetener to get off the brock besser deal like those are the types of things that i think that they're going to have to consider here in the off season but i am so with you and i want the market to raise the bar here uh in the modern nhl if the canucks are going to ultimately get where patrick elvin wants them to go and believes they can get to it's not about having a third line guy that can tread water. It's not. It's about like in my mind, you're looking at a 35 to 45 point guy that yep. in the event of a knock to Elias Pettersson or JT Miller can slide up in the pinch. You're not going to replace those guys. I get that. We're not talking about if the season ending injuries that changes the conversation, but injuries happen. And so I, I don't want a guy that is a fourth line center that can slide up to a third line guy. I want a third line center with some you know, track record in the NHL of point production. Uh, And I looked at the teams in the playoffs here. And I mean, the Boston Bruins obviously are on another level just in the season that they've had, their roster construction, uh, prohibitive champ favorites, all that kind of stuff. But to me, Charlie Coyle is a perfect example. 16 goals, 45 points. That's what you're looking for, in my mind, in a third line center. But he's not alone. Like the Rangers, Philip Heedle, you know, 45 points, <laughs> 20. Yeah. Hey, wasn't, yeah. he linked, wasn't he linked to the Canucks once? Um, you know, Max Domi's interesting because yes. he's a third line guy in Dallas. Yes. Now his point, per, he had 56 points, but he played higher in the lineup in Chicago before the yeah. trade. So, you know, I'm not sure he would have been a 56 point guy all season in Dallas if he'd been the third line. But again, experienced guy that's been through some of the battles, uh, has the offensive chops there. You know, Eric Halla. Another guy, 41 points. Uh, Jordan Stahl. Yeah, you know, Jordan Stahl in Carolina, 
17 goals, 34 yep. points. Nick Bukestad, a yep. uh, nice pickup by the Edmonton Oilers, 17 goals, 29 points. So the points aren't as high as some of those other guys, but, you know, Bukestad's contract is up. Big guy down the middle. I wonder if that's the kind of player that could be on the radar for the Vancouver Canucks. So, you know, for this exercise, that identifies some of the playoff teams and the guys that they essentially have. You know, Nick Paul in Tampa was a nice pickup for them. 17 goals, 32 points this year. How about, how about Ryan O'Reilly in Toronto? I know he's playing he's second play- line center yeah, right so now, but I, he has played third line for them too. Like, they've got a wealth there of centers, though. <clears throat> right. So, and he's not an option coming here to Vancouver, no, I don't think. No, so it's going to be priced out. And so maybe on another episode, we look at potential guys, because I, I, I just identified guys yeah. that were with their teams. But, but in my mind, that's what the Canucks need and so it brings us back to the conversation and the question was put to Alvina Tockett yesterday Tockett looked and sounded more like he was thinking defensive face-offs and uh matchup and and I, I gotta be a point producer as well Has I know raise yeah. that bar yeah and so that's where Neil Zaman comes in and look I I we spent a lot of the season charting his progress there were ups there was downs uh he was a win for the organization I want to be clear about that He's 23. I think that there's room to grow. He'll process a first year in the National Hockey League. Had to go down to the AHL for a while, but, you know, seemed to be inspired by that and regained his confidence. But he had four goals. And, you know, 16 points in this. What did he play? I think he played almost all the games. Uh, oh, I guess there was a stint in the. Yeah, was he 60, had a stint there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, can you double your point? Can you get from 16 to 34? Five points. I'm not sure that that's the kind of player he is. I think he's more the guy that, you know, on a good team as a fourth line center, does the things that Rick Tockett wants. He's got to get better in the faceoffs. He was 38% on the draw. But, you know, if there's an injury to a third line guy, Oman can slide up and be your third line. But I don't think he profiles as a kind of guy that you want playing any higher in your lineup. So uh, this is me not trying to knock Nils Amon at all. Like, I think he can be a part of what the Canucks are putting forward here, but I see him as a bottom six player who you just want to continue to grow and develop uh, and do the things that he did this year, but I don't see him profiling as any sort of offensive player. So I'm totally with you there. Uh, Set the bar a little bit higher. I don't know how you go about it with the, the cap constraints, but, you know, the types of players that I just listed off there, the, on the, these are all playoff teams. These are good teams, and those are the kinds of players that they have slotted in their third line center position. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November fourth at BC Place. Kickoff at three thirty p.m. Looking forward to this one. Playoff football, BC Place. The Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them. The Dome will be rocking. Should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com. And check this out. They start at just 30 bucks, and kids 17 and under can get in for 15 So bring the noise. Fill the Dome. Applewood Auto Group is celebrating 25 years of business, making the car business and our communities better. Applewood offers the best in-class experience whether you're looking for a car, service, or to join our team. Come find out why it's all good at Applewood. Visit us online at applewood.ca today. You talked about those uh, playoff teams with that depth that they have down the middle. Let's get into some playoff talk presented by our buddy Jason Hominick at Jason 
Mortgage. Two of the four games going to OT last night and getting a little extra flavor there uh, between the Wild and the Stars. Let's start with that one. A 3-2 Wild win, double OT. The story of the game to me was the Matt Dumba hit on Pavelski, but not only that, can the Stars get Jake Ottinger a freaking overtime win? Like that guy does all he can. And then just a lousy goal that goes off a skate and ends up in the back of the net for, uh, uh, for the wild. Uh, but again, what did you think of the Dumba hit on Pavelski? Uh, I think the court of public opinion sort of uh, down the middle on this one. Yeah, I thought it was late if it was anything. Um, it was tough because there was a player, I can't off the top of my head think of who it was, um, that was between Dumba and Pavelski. And I think he kind of blocked Pavelski's view. And all of a sudden, Dumba just appeared and blew him up. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have a hit. The hit, it's playoff hockey. There's going to be big hits. And, you know, it may have been close to the line, but I, I thought the hit itself was okay. If anything, it was a touch late. Um, and it's tough. I mean, Pavelski's a terrific player, obviously, uh, particularly in power play, net front, and all that kind of stuff. And in a game where Dallas had a couple of power plays in overtime, they missed him. I joked in overtime that I thought Minnesota was trying somehow to to win the game 2-2. Uh, I saw somebody reply, they're playing for the shootout, which I thought well, was hilarious. But <laughs> we've talked about this, and again, the, the times I watched Dallas closely against the Canucks, they didn't impress me. Jason Robertson, like, I get the numbers. He's an right? incredible player. And 109 I points? Like, I do not see 109 points when I, know, I watch him when I watch, And so, like, I don't want to <laughs> knock the guy because I get it. He's an incredible <laughs> player, but I, when I watch him, like, I mean, he probably doesn't want me to watch him because yeah. he just doesn't seem to have his... Man. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, Dallas had... They're kicking themselves. They had power plays in overtime. They had opportunities. Yeah. Uh, Brock Faber made that diving stab on the Marchman channel. Like how that... how good is that kid? Just to step into the situation <laughs> yeah. he's playing. He looks like a grizzled vet. He was yeah. just playing for the University of Minnesota like a couple of weeks ago. So uh like I, I still like Dallas to win the series. If I think if Minnesota had lost that game, that would have been crushing for them. Yeah. Um but I, I still I mean the the overtime period was spent pretty much I mean Minnesota had a couple of opportunities, but most of the two overtimes spent in the wild end and Dallas just has to finish. So uh, be interesting. Yeah, Ottinger to... was tested like once in the overtime outside of the goal. You're right. And it was all Dallas there. And was Marchman's chance. I was an OT. Was it not that? Oh yeah. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that was yeah. a game on his stick. So yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it was great playoff overtime on opening night and not just there, but ultimately did, didn't see overtime coming in Edmonton, but uh, wow. overtime came and Andre Kopitar again, just eating on all four of the, LA yeah. goals, uh, had a Back hell of a clock. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, again, if you're the Oilers, it's a spook, obviously. I mean, to lose the opener when you have the lead, I still like their chances to win the series, but boy, that gives LA some confidence. They kept McDavid off the score sheet. Yeah. Um, I'll get to that. <laughs> You know, the Kings, like we talked about, we call them the boa constrictor, right? They love that 1-3-1, and they just hound you and just wait in the neutral zone. But I didn't know if they could get to four. I didn't know if they could get to four goals, quite honestly. So for them, like, that's a jackpot of offense. I don't know that they're going to score four every game, but uh, good on them. No quit on them. I mean, I I don't think people around the league talk about uh, Adrian Kempe enough as a goal score. They did it without Fiala. Fiala didn't play. And Adrian Kempe in what, 38 or 39 in the regular season. No, he got to 40, actually. I think he had a hat trick on the final night of the regular season. Um, 
you know, he's just a clutch goal scorer. And, and they got depth too. That, that's you talk about. Yeah. The Canucks saw them enough late. We did pregame shows. Yeah. They had one of the, they were top five power plays. So it's kind of fitting that they ended up, you know, beating the Oilers at their own game in overtime. Yeah. Penalty was a little greasy, but whatever it was called. Oh, it was and, a penalty. It, to me, then, it was a penalty. And then, did you not like it? Nah, I. He swung his stick. I mean, I. I don't like the player myself. Uh, I find him to be way too much of a hothead, and I think he's yep. gonna he's gonna hurt the Oilers. And in that play, he swung his stick like that stick that was on the ice. What did not trip? Was right. it Ken, I, I think was, it, was Kempe was the player. Uh, I can't off the top of my head. I can't yeah. remember who got the penalty, but or drew the penalty. But but yeah, I, I do wonder. I mean, they like DeHarnay's size, and he brings some toughness, but. Uh, I do wonder if they're going to be able to play him much. And certainly if uh, he takes penalties like that, uh, you know, he won't be long for playoff hockey. But again, I think underrated people don't recognize that L.A. was right there in this mix with Colorado and Toronto and other that have really good power plays. And sure enough, they got their opportunity. And, you know, that's a great setup, obviously, by uh, Arvidsson and was it Arvidsson was the one that made the 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 flash to the back of the net to pick off the pass yes. right and it's just unbelievable play there yeah i like this kings team uh, they're they're you know they don't wow you but they have the depth and yeah. like they'll strike when they need to they're like the uh, fast and the furious uh, movie series there they just they're never going to stop jpat they're never going to stop are we where are we? we're into double digits now i don't we? even know where I they are so. I, I haven't I think- seen one of those <laughs> No, I, I don't know that I've ever watched one start to finish, but I think we're at least, I, I believe the tenth one is out now. Um, is it like Vin Diesel's like kid now that's in? There? I don't know. Like, <laughs> lose the star, right? Paul Walker was the star. Oh, that's or, right. Or the, oh my! Just keep on, yeah. keep it on. Maybe it's a hologram. I don't know. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on. The uh, the Eastern games weren't as uh, great. Uh, Boston's, you know, it's sort of textbook win uh, for them. But one thing that I just find that jumped off the page for me is imagine in Vancouver if the Canucks. We're in the playoffs, but had $14.5 million in goaltending not playing. Like, I, and I know that Spencer Knight's got his issues and he's dealing with those right now, but a $10 million goalie Bob on the bench, like that would be just like people's heads would explode here in they Vancouver would. if that was the case. Yeah. And the Marshawn goal was awful. Like oh, that was one that, yeah. and the one on the pad, like, sorry, it's sitting on your pad. Like it's, it's to me, that was a goal. And look, the Bruins, uh, you know, it almost feels like a middle finger to the rest of the league that Bergeron isn't available on opening night yeah, and still, yeah. they still just go and do their thing and, and win. I mean, Florida played hard and it was closer maybe than I thought it would be. Uh, but still, like, I mean, Bergeron's health moving forward is something to, to monitor, but uh, the fact that they're able to do what they do and Pavel Zaka just slides in there and, you know, they've got so much depth that, you know, get Taylor Hall playing on the third line on that team. So, uh, our trophy winner. Yeah. And then uh, honestly, I watched about two minutes of uh, the Carolina uh, Islanders game. That one just didn't hold a ton of intrigue for yeah, me. Yeah, I too screened it the whole time, so I was yeah. watching everything. But yeah, no, it wasn't. It was. I mean, Carolina grinded it out. It's going to be a boring series. It is. Yeah. And, and and you know, they're two again, defensive I mean, teams. How many times we watched Bo Horvat from afar and yeah. we wondered about offense? They got Barzell back and they score one goal and it's from a defenseman. So unless they can unlock some offense, uh, I'm not sure that the Isles are, are going to be around for long. The BC Lions are back in the playoffs and hosting the Calgary Stampeders on Saturday, November 4th at BC Place. Kickoff at 3.30 p.m. Looking forward to this one. Playoff football, BC Place. 
the Lions and that offense with Vernon Adams at the controls and all of those weapons he has in his receiving core. And you just think about the atmosphere in that building with the fans behind them. The Dome will be rocking. Should be a ton of fun. Tickets on sale now at bclions.com. And check this out. They start at just 30 bucks, and kids 17 and under can get in for 15 So bring the noise. Fill the Dome. There in Quiet Vancouver is presented by Bodog Sports Odds, Poker Tips, and Free Casino Games. Make a play. I tried to make a play with my Bodog Best Bet last night, and boy, did I think I was going to hit it. Like hmm. early on, it was looking good. I had Connor McDavid, uh, Kirill Kaprizov, and David Pasternak all to score one goal or more at plus 590. I was like, yeah. you got to be kidding me. Opening night of the playoffs, those three goal scorers Kaprizov hits, Pasternak hits. Connor McDavid does not hit. <laughs> of all the guys, Mr. Woody scored 64 goals this year, was it? Something like that. Anyway, so uh, tonight, though, I'm looking at a couple of more goal scorers in Austin Matthews and Nathan McKinnon, both to score one or more goals at plus 260. Feeling really good about that one and only having to get two out of three as opposed to three. Uh, I think I'll hit it. And Austin Matthews, of course, is going to want to have a big series as Toronto tries to finally get out of the first round. And Nate McKinnon, I mean, is there was there a quieter, like, 100-point guy this year than Nathan McKinnon? Like, he was unreal. Yeah, um, and has shown that, uh, you know, he can rise to the challenge in the playoffs. And uh, yeah, I, I'm curious to see how Seattle attacks that, how they try to defend, what kind of goaltending they get. Obviously, they're... Uh, secret weapon is their depth and their balance, and and they're plucky. But I don't know that uh, they're at the level. In fact, I think I do know that they're not at the level of the Colorado Avalanche. So I'm expecting the Avs to roll there. And uh, Nathan McKinnon's as fun as just about anybody to watch in the National Hockey League. So uh, on the big stage of the playoffs, uh, looking forward to seeing uh, what he has in store. Speaking of the playoffs, the Abbey Canucks are kicking off their uh, series tomorrow in Abbotsford as well. So we'll keep an eye on that uh, here on the podcast as well. And uh, we'll be with you throughout the playoffs. And of course, all Canuck news, you know where to come. Required Vancouver. Just a quick thought on the Abbey playoffs. And again, I'm excited for them. It's good that, you know, uh, the farm system seems to be something that the organization is getting right. They've devoted a lot of resources to it. Uh, I like the hiring of Jeremy Colleton. You heard uh, Patrick Elvin name check him uh, yesterday, uh, the work that he's done there with his staff. You know, it's funny when we talked earlier in the program about Jet Wu maybe being a legitimate prospect again. um, I'm fascinated by Danila Klimovich, uh, who, you know, still has a lot of work to do to ever play games in the National Hockey League. But he's also 20 years old. He turned 20 in January. He had 17 goals and 29 points in 67 American Hockey League games. and was plus 15. Uh, like Again, he doesn't turn 21 until next January. If he gets off to a good start in Abbotsford next year, let's say he gets 10 goals before Christmas, he'd have 35 American Hockey League goals before the age of 21, which... All things considered, for a guy that people thought was a wild card pick and, you know, a hothead and, you know, what were they doing picking him? And Logan Stankoven went a couple of picks after him and uh, all that kind of stuff. Like, it's not easy to score goals in the American Hockey League, certainly as a teen and just turned 20 year old playing against veteran guys. And, uh, you know, I think all things considered, he took a big step forward this year. I, again, I don't know where it goes for him, how 
long the development curve is going to be. Uh, they've got so many wingers that, you know, it's, you wish he was a center. Like you wish that so many of their prospects played the middle instead of the wing, but it's just, again, he's got like time on his side here that he just turned 20 yeah. in January and already yeah. has 25 American hockey league goals to his name. So, uh, you remember last year, he couldn't get into the playoffs. So there were issues, uh, some tough love and trying to teach him about being a pro and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, he's not had the experience, but he'll be part of this playoff mix. And I hope for Abbotsford's sake and the Canuck organization's sake that, uh, this is a good long playoff run. Yeah. We'll definitely have our eye on it here yep. on Rinkwide Vancouver. All right. This has been another edition of the Rinkwide Vancouver podcast presented by Bodog for Jeff Patterson. I'm Andrew Wadden. Remember, Rinkwide is the show.